This episode of Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is brought to you by my friends at 1-8 Distilling. Founded in my hometown of Northeast Washington, D.C., 1-8 Distilling is committed to representing the nation's capital by producing the finest grain-to-glass spirits from scratch. Using only locally sourced ingredients in the Mid-Atlantic region, they've created their district-made line of fine spirits. The core range is all made in-house and includes vodka, Ivy City Gin, that's my favorite, barrel-rested Ivy City Gin, bourbon, and rye. Now, I have to tell you, I had some of the barrel-rested Ivy City Gin for the first time when I was visiting last week, and that stuff is phenomenal. You need to try it. You can ask for District Made at your fine local retailer, or if you live or work in the DMV, pop into the distillery's bottle shop. They're open Tuesdays through Sunday, right there in Ivy City off New York Avenue in D.C., and the bottle shop also carries a full range of merchandise, it's pretty cool, and cocktails to go. Visit them online at 18distilling.com. That's O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T distilling.com. While you're on the site, join their mailing list to stay on top of their upcoming releases because they're doing something all the time. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at 18D. That's O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T, the letter D. Check them out. And now, back to the show. There are years where all of a sudden you see a lot more rosé. Mm. And you see lots of people making it that never made it before. Don't buy that. <laughs> Don't buy it. Yeah. They made it for the first time ever. Yeah. Maybe they got away with it, but I got to say, rosé is probably the hardest wine out there to make. And anyone that's really trying to craft a quality rosé, they get that. This is Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher a podcast that shines a light on the best winemakers, craft brewers, and spirit distillers in the DMV. So grab a glass of your favorite adult beverage. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, and let's get started. Thank you, Asia. Hello, and welcome to Barrel Tasting. I'm Howard Fletcher, and I'm very excited because on today's show, I'll not only be featuring a winery in one of my favorite places in Virginia, and that's the town of Middleburg, but I'll also be speaking with a very accomplished winemaker who not only learned her craft solely in the state of Virginia, but she has become one of, if not the best, maker of rosé in the region. But before we get into the details, I want to ask you in advance to please subscribe and rate the podcast if you've not done so already. And I also have some really exciting news. Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher is now available on Alexa. So if you have an Alexa device in your home or you have the Alexa app in your car or on your phone, just say Alexa, open Barrel Tasting Podcast, and the latest episode of my show will play on your device. And please rate and review us on Alexa as well. Five stars only, please. You know how we roll. Anyway, I am very pleased to say that my guest today is Melanie Natoli, the winemaker and vigneron of Cana Vineyards and Winery. Melanie joined Cana in 2015. And she has advanced the wine program at Cana to produce several award-winning vintages. In 2017, she was the first Virginia winemaker to be named Woman Winemaker of the Year at the Women's International Wine Competition. In other words, she's one of the best at what she does. As you'll hear, we had a great discussion about Virginia wine and her journey from a career as a physical therapist to being an award-winning winemaker. We were in one of their spacious suites in their tasting room, so if it sounds a bit echoey, that's the reason. It is a big, beautiful place. And that's enough out of me. So with no further ado, this is my conversation with Melanie Natoli of Cana Vineyards and Winery, 
Let's all raise a glass. Okay, I'm here at the beautiful Cana Vineyards and Winery. I have to confess, I have, well, no, I came here once, but it was so packed that we turned around and went somewhere else. <laughs> and ever since then, unfortunately, as much as I like craft beverages and, and the wine of Virginia, I'm a creature of habit. And so there are a few wineries nearby you that I've just sort of my go-tos. And as a result, I haven't gotten here and I feel really bad about that, but I like to be, like to confess. So I'm here with Melanie Natoli and she is the head winemaker here. I'm the only winemaker. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, tell me about how you even got into the business or the person who's making the wine. What, what's their backstory? So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it's a very good question to ask around here because we all have, or most of us have a good story. Yeah. Most of us, you can start off by saying, so what was your first career, <laughs> right? I think the industry in Virginia is getting a little bit older now. So we are starting to see people actually come into winemaking as their first career, which is nice. Um, it was not the case for me. I was a physical therapist okay. for eight years. So I have my master's and license and physical therapy. Some people say, oh, do you go to school? I'm like, yeah, I went to school. I yeah. got a master's in physical therapy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I was a PT for eight years and it's probably five years into my career. And I was like, hmm, like, well, maybe someday, you know, I really like wine. I think, you know, when I retire, I'll, I'll open up a winery. And I was smart enough to, to, to clue in to make the change sooner. Um, I think it was really great for a couple reasons. Again, I was happy with my career, but I was only five years in. So I probably wasn't going to make it all the way until I retired, still right. wanting to do that. Um, and I don't think I would have retired with the amount of pocket change that you need to actually start a winery. So where, you know, where were you living at the time when you were a physical therapist? Um, well, I practiced in about four different states. I moved around a good bit after school, mm -hmm. but most recently I was out in the Shenandoah Valley. Okay. So I lived in Winchester and I worked up and down the valley. All right. So you were in wine country, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it really helped, you know, I moved to, to Virginia and that got me real close to the, the booming industry here so that I could see that and find that that really was my, my real passion and my real calling. Um, it's nothing I thought of sooner. And, and I think, you know, here in America, unless you're growing up right in the middle of a wine region, your family owns a winery, you're not going to be exposed to it soon enough, you know, and Europe wines on the table as you're a kid. So it's an option for a career. Yeah. And I think for me, it's not something I ever would have considered. Um, so about five years into being a PT, I started working at a winery in the tasting room on the weekend just to get closer, just to see it more. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to do. Right, right. And then I had to think to myself, okay, if you're going to make the move now, what do you want to do at the winery? And it was pretty quick to go, no, I want to be the one that makes the wine. Mm -hmm. So I, I went back and forth with the idea of going back to school, getting another degree. Um, I actually flew out to, to California and, and looked at the program at Fresno State and kind of mapped out what it would take for me there. And I, I thought that was my path. Mm -hmm. um, I met a winemaker regionally that's like oh no you, you have to get a degree or you oh you'll never be able to do it without that piece of paper met more winemakers that said that's not really the case right and i was like okay but i think i should go to school and i was close um and i, I was 
you know, smart enough to realize I am still paying for my first two degrees. Yeah. Um, I'm <laughs> not done with those two yet. So I'm like, well, if I can do it without creating a lot more debt, you know, maybe that's a good idea. Yeah. And even when I went out to Fresno and I sat down with the head of the department there, he said, you know, this is, this is the path you can take, but it's an industry like all others. It really is about connections and relationships and who you know. And that is so true um, in a lot of really good ways in Virginia. Yeah. Um, so I said, okay. You know, it was Doug Fabioli that was one of the ones that told me, you don't have to go to school. I said, all right. So I went back and sat down like, okay, I'm ready to listen. What do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know, go ahead, get, you know, talk to the winemaker where you are at the tasting room. See if you can get some time in the cellar with them there. You know, you can just get some, some hours and just, just start working. And, um, I did a little bit with that winemaker. Doug ended up calling me up a few weeks later. When I first sat down with him, it was August. It was approaching harvest season. He already had an intern in, in his ranks, so he really didn't have a spot for me, but he offered to help me find one if I needed one. And um, he called me up one night and he's like, you know what, we're gonna pick and process Merlot tomorrow. Can you come out? I'm like, sure. Yeah. So I went out and we picked the Merlot, we processed, we sorted, spent a whole 10, 12 hour day. We sat down at the end of the day and he looked at me, he's like, do you still really wanna do this? I'm like, yes. <laughs> he's like, all right. And he's like, I want you to stay and I want to pay you. I'm like, I'm yours. Great. Um, so at that point I had switched from full-time to per diem as physical therapist. I still needed to, still needed to pay my rent and my bills. I understand. <laughs> so thankfully physical therapy is a great career mm -hmm. and there is work. Mm -hmm. So I worked three days a week as a PT and three days a week in the vineyards and the cellars. And I did that for two years. Mm -hmm. I've split my time half and half. Um, and it wasn't even, you know, first half of the week, second half of the week. It was any given day I had to wake up and say, okay, who am I today? Which is, you know, I got tiring after a couple of years, but um, it was a great experience. And it just kind of worked out while I was there at Fabiola Silver. So that was 2009 when I started. Um, they had grown and that business had grown so that two years in, they were able to offer me a full-time position. So I just kind of stepped up Yeah. from there. <laughs> It's funny, I, you know, you, you asked me before we started how many of these uh, interviews I've done, and I've, I've done a pretty good number so far. And whenever I speak to people in Loudoun County, and they're not all winemakers, mm -hmm. but two or three names come up most of the time, and Doug Fabioli's name comes up often. Absolutely. You know, it, it's really, I haven't had him on the show yet. We've talked, and I'm re hopefully that'll be soon. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, I, what, one thing I really like about the community, I, the winemaking community that I have been able to see from the outside looking in, it seems very collaborative. Big time. Um, it's, it's amazing. And it's surprising to hear sometimes other regions in the country that aren't that way. Right. Because um, that's, I mean, this is where I started making wine. This is where I've always made wine. This is my third winery, but I've always been in Virginia and I've always been in Loudoun County. So it's, it's hard to imagine that like, oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to tell you know, your neighbor down the road, give them a heads up about something or you're, you have proprietary secrets. Come on. Like, what, what is that? You know, I think we we all kind of subscribe to, you know, we want everyone to make better wine. Yeah. Right. I don't want a winery in the neighborhood to be making really bad wine. Yeah. Someone goes there for the first time and says, oh, Virginia wine is horrible. No, I want everyone to have a really good impression of what we're doing. 
in the state. Um, and that's, I mean, that's how I've learned so much is from my colleagues. So starting with, you know, being Doug's intern and, and him being my first mentor to meeting a lot of the other winemakers in, in the county, you know, we've had roundtable discussions. We sit down, we bring our wines to the table. We bring our worst wines yeah. to the table to taste with each other to say, hey, how can I fix this, yeah, right? Cool. You know, and it's just it's just such a great resource. You know, I remember I started here at Cana in 2015. Mm -hmm. So as the winemaker and the vineyard manager. So I'm running the vineyard as well. And that was, I've always had some vineyard background, but the, this, this was new for me to be running the whole show and the whole program out there. We had a hailstorm that year. Oh no. Never seen that before. I was like, oh my gosh. Like it was maybe it was 2016. It was the year of the big hailstorm in town that wrecked everybody's cars. Terrified to drive to work because I come from the other side. So I'm driving through Middlebury and I'm seeing all the leaves and the trees down, the pictures of people's cars. I'm like, I don't even want to look at the vineyard. Yeah. I get out here and it was fine the way it missed it. Yeah. Three days later, we got our own storm. <laughs> and I'm like, you know. Yeah. And the damage on the on each individual little berry, each little grape, I was like, I never, I don't know what to do. So I'm taking pictures with my phone right away. I'm sending them off to another winemaker I know. And he's like, oh boy. So then he sends them to another winemaker, another, another vineyard manager, right. another grower. And we're all kind of talking through it together about what can I, what do I do now? Yeah. Because that was a first for me to see in the vineyard. Yeah. Well, I had a similar conversation with, uh, uh, it was Nancy DeLiso over at, uh, at uh, HCA, although she doesn't work the, the field, what she was saying was the same thing, that you're very collaborative here. And because of the nature of the climate here mm -hmm. and the terrain, uh, that somebody could get wrecked during a storm and the person right next door might be totally fine. Yeah. And so it's good that you can kind of talk to people who have some experience here now and say, well, what do I do? And, it, and you help each other. And that really has helped. I, see, I live in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And uh, although I started this podcast or a podcast uh, talking to Virginia winemakers, then I went up to my home state and found some decent winemakers there. But the, Absolutely. the, the good, the, the thing is about Virginia is I think that you got your, as a state, got your act together as winemakers about 10 years or 15 years before Maryland. <laughs> Maryland did. And it seems like you're networked better and you have better support from the state. It's all the stuff from, together. From the state, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really helpful, you know, ever since I've, I've started. And we have a you know an extension agent on the viticulture side and the enology side from Virginia Tech that are there to help us, mm -hmm. that are doing you know, local trainings in the area that we get together that are just offered to us to learn, you know, or, you know, I had something that looked funny in the vineyard. So our viticulture extension agent is um, Tremaine Hatch. Now I know you were at Zephaniah, mm -hmm. so it's, it's um, their son. So right. he's helping at the winery there too, but he's also our state viticulture agent. So it's nice that he's so close and hey, Tremaine, come look at this for me. And come right out and, and look through it and then talk through it with you. So yeah, we're really well supported. I mean, we are, a $1.5 billion industry for the state. So yes. the state recognizes that. So they support <laughs> us and we support them. And it's, it, it's, you know, we're very lucky. Yeah, it's worked out. I don't want to skip over the fact that you went from what some might say, Celerant to now you are the only winemaker at a different vineyard in which you started. Mm -hmm. That's a, that, that's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. So can you tell you know, share with us a little bit of what you had to do in order to, didn't go to school, 
tell us about all the hours you must have put in yeah. to learn your craft. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just a lot of time. So I started off as an intern position um, for two years, and then I stayed on at Fabioli Sellers. That was 2009 to 11, and I stayed on through 2013 Vintage, would have mm-hmm. been my last one there. So being able to, you know start in one spot and kind of work up and then work into the assistant winemaker position where I was kind of running that cellar before I left. That was a, a big step, but it was still a huge step to leave there and go to the next spot and be like, okay, it's, it's me. Yeah. All those decisions are just me, but they're really not because we do have support in the industry. Um, and when I was looking to move on, because it was, it was time for me to move on and, and take the reins somewhere. And obviously, if, if, if the owner's the winemaker, that spot's never going to be open, right? right? <laughs> so I talked to some of my, my industry colleagues and let them know I was looking. Um, so even positions that weren't posted, they're like, Malcolm, over here. So I talked to one, didn't seem like a good fit. Talked to another, you know, got on my feet there. And I, you know, I was, had the support of my colleagues to say, hey, hire her. She's going to be a good fit yeah you know and then you get there and you just you just you just do it well you must be doing a great <laughs> job because uh, as you know i i you know we're together here because uh you know i have some connections that visit loudon and i uh, said i really want to talk to the quality winemakers in loudon and they pointed me in your direction so that speaks volumes you Thank know you. <laughs> when you were at that point you say you're ready to move on or when you think well gosh i wonder what it'd like to run my own place was there something that they weren't necessarily doing there, a, a, a type of uh, varietal or something, where you said, if I have an opportunity to make that type of decision and we can grow it here, uh, it's the right terroir and stuff. Uh, what Was there something like that that you had the opportunity to delve into that they really weren't doing? Well, so the vineyard here was planted before I got here. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the third the third year, I think, so 2015, or actually the fourth year for these vines. The vineyard was put in and established and didn't quite get everything I needed right away. So my, my first year was kind of a little bit of rehab and catch up, but it was really nice because I got to be here for the first the first estate vintage, the nice. first time we pulled fruit off of here. Um, looking at different wines I'd like to make, um, I was lucky enough to make the first rosé um, for Doug. Um, it, that, that's, that's my thing. I mean, anyone that's, that's met me, if you talk to my <laughs> colleagues in the industry, they will point you to me for rosé and that's, that's what I do. And I, I make a couple of them here. I'm big on lighter, brighter, fresher white wines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of my, my strongest parts as, as a winemaker. So that's somewhere I, I focus. Like? Um, like my Albarino, Uh that's probably my favorite, favorite white wine that I produce. And here's, here's how that one happened. So we have a vineyard, um, locally close to us. It's Greenstone Vineyard and it's one of my favorite growers to work with. And that's another huge, important relationship. Um, (laughs) working with your growers is, is, is big and having people that understand your goal as a winemaker, understand the quality that you're looking for and have it in them to really want to do that for themselves too. Like you're working towards a common goal. Um, I have had other growers that I've worked with that I don't anymore um, because it just wasn't a good fit. The fruit quality was not where I needed to be. I saw issues in the vineyard and we talk about it and it was clear that they had no desire to do it better. So I mean, I don't have time for that. 
So Greenstone Vineyard, he is um, between us and Leesburg. And he grows the Merlot for my, one of my rosés, and he mm -hmm. grows the Albarino. So Dean Triplett, the grower there, had worked at Willowcroft, and the property is right next to it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the Albarino that used to go into Willowcroft's Albarino. Hmm. Willowcroft planted their own on their property. Okay. And in 2015, yeah, that was their first one, their Albarino came into production. And more than they expected. So they picked their own fruit first and went, oh, we have, we have enough. Yeah. We, don't, we don't need yours. This is where those relationships have come in. You're already sourcing fruit from someone. You work well together. They're going to call you first and say, hey, do you want this? Mm -hmm. And then if you have room in the cellar, you say yes. Because you take it first and then you keep it, right? It's really important. <laughs> Figure it out later. Yeah. So we brought it in that year and we're like, okay, looking at the white yeast we have, this one will work for Albarino. It wasn't part of the original plan. Mm -hmm. um, you know, your big fermentation plan. I write out a big spreadsheet and have all my winemaking steps. But then I scribble over it. I'll harvest because you, know, you have to have a good plan, but have it written in pencil is what I say, because you don't know what's going to happen with the season. Yeah. Um, so it comes in, we're like, okay, we worked with it. Didn't get to make the pick decision on it. Right. So like when you're going to make a wine for yourself, you're out there in, in the vineyard all season and you're tasting it and you're deciding where the sugar and the acid and the flavor is for the wine style that you want to make. Um, so it was picked later than I probably would have, but it was really fun to work with. It was, beautiful expression. And I think every year since Dean and I have kind of worked together to just really dial in where we want that wine to be. Um, and I, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. I like Albarino yeah. a lot. I'm more of a red person, mm -hmm. but, and, but I've, by doing this podcast, I've been, uh, exploring more whites, Jim Law at Linden kind of bore that into my head. And, uh, that's the white that I really like a lot right yeah. now. Yeah. So let's talk about sourcing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I know you have you have some estate vines mm -hmm. here, but you do source outside of your estate. Absolutely. Is there a, a do you try to keep it within Virginia, within Loudoun County, within the, the Mid Atlantic? What how do you do sourcing? Okay, so yeah, we have our seven and a half acres that are here on the estate. I have two Loudoun County growers that I've been working with. Ideally, I want everything as close as it can be to me because if it's not, it's a lot harder to go look at. Mm -hmm. So I want it to be somewhere that I can look at easy during the growing season, mm -hmm. somewhere where I can go see the fruit. Um, I did pull in some fruit from a vineyard farther south in Virginia um, this year for the first time, then I'll probably continue to, to work with that vineyard. I have sourced from out of state. Um, the last vintage would have been 2018, but we don't need to talk about that vintage, right? <laughs> so the, First and foremost, I want good quality fruit. Mm -hmm. um, and I have had times, like I said, that I, I've stopped working with a local grower because it wasn't there. So first preference, yeah, it's as close as it can be to here so I can drive and go see it whenever I want to. Okay, if I can't do that, let's keep it in Virginia. If I can't do that and I have to source outside, I will. It's, it's not my preference, but I'm not going to put poor quality fruit in a bottle just so I can write Virginia on it. Right. I'm especially not going to do that. And I wish that nobody would. Yeah. Right. Like I, I, if it's, if it's going to say Virginia, I want it to be really good and to understand people know what we're doing here. If I am sourcing 
from out of state. It'll say American on the label, so you know that it's not a Virginia product. Um, and I will keep those separate. Mm-hmm. So if I blend a Virginia and an, and an out of state fruit together, it's going to be an American wine. Okay. You'll never see that out of state fruit in a bottle labeled Virginia, Virginia, even though you could have a little bit of a twenty percent, twenty five percent leeway. Right. That goes a long way. And I don't think it's a Virginia wine anymore. Right. So I'll, I'll I would agree. keep them separate so that you know. <laughs> yeah. No, I would agree with that yeah. for sure. I'm looking down at your the list of the wines, and I got this off your website. So I don't know if it's current. Um, I know it's always hard to keep websites <laughs> current up to date, but I noticed that you have a port mm-hmm. on there. Um, who do you uh, do you distill that here, or does there is there someone you uh, collaborate with to, to do that? So um, the base for the port yeah. um, is all Loudoun County fruit. Um, it was fortified with um, just a just a grape spirit, so okay. it wasn't a local. Okay. Just a seller. All right. <laughs> um, of these red, let's mm-hmm. I'm look at the red list. Is there a red that you particularly lean toward? Yeah, like? that's easy. Okay. You're probably not seeing much on the white list because we sold out of everything. Sure, sure. We just bought, like I said, last Friday. So yeah. springtime, those will all come out, yeah. but they're gone for now. As far as the reds go, yeah, that's an easy one for me. That Unite Estate um, Reserve, because again, that's my estate wine. So that, that's me. I mean, that's a wine that I get to craft from the very first beginning of bud break in the vineyard all the way until it mm-hmm. hits the bottle. I mean, I am out there in the vineyard all summer doing all of that canopy management. So my hands are on every single one of those vines. So it definitely holds a special place in my right. heart for sure. And that is a red blend that will right. be the best of what's on my estate. So the red varietals that are growing out there are Petit Verdot, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot. There's Norton at the bottom of the hill. It hasn't produced yet, and that'll be its own wine. So yeah. the Unite will be a blend of those three primary grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, the exact blend will change year to year. You know, I'll sure. pick the fruit. I'll ferment it separately. It'll all go in its barrels. I age for about a year and a half on my reds. Mm-hmm. And then I'll taste through each barrel, and I'll pull all my favorite pieces to represent. So, you know, if you don't make the cut for the Unite, you'll end up in one of the varietal wines. But. Yeah. Now, rosé is something that mm. I used to shun. You, you know, I, I'm not that way anymore. But okay, I, was, I can fix that, I feel Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I wasn't familiar until, I would say, maybe two and a half years ago with the dry red rosé. Mm-hmm. You know, when I thought of rosé, I thought of very sweet wine, and there are those rosés. But the ones that I've confronted here, the vintages I've confronted in this region that are made from dry grapes, I really, really do love. Um, now, 2018, you said, well, mentioned that was a year there was a ton of rain, right? Yep. And uh, I know some vineyards didn't even produce any red wine, especially those that uh, kind of specialize in it and uh, make some very expensive bottles. They decided not to, to produce. Yeah, you won't see any Unite Reserve from my estate from 18. Right, it right. It wasn't good enough to get the name, you know? Now, tell me, now, what I was told, not by somebody who knows better, so that's why mm. I want to get some clarification from the rosé expert. Mm. I was told that because, uh, <laughs> and the reason a lot of red, the reds, first, the reason my understanding is that a lot of reds weren't, weren't able to be made from those grapes is because the grapes were had too much water in them. They were too watery. But I was told that Rosé was able to be salvaged from some of those grapes. Is that not true? I'm going to say a big no to that for the most part. Um, yeah. So when you get a year that's like a knockout rain, you're like 2018 historically worst ever. Right. I mean, you mentioned Jim Law earlier, and I actually saw him in an event 
right before harvest started. We mm -hmm. were both pouring it. And I went over because he's got decades more experience. And yeah. We knew what the harvest was going to be because we were living every day at that vineyard season. I said, any, any advice? Like, what are we going to do? And he's like, oh, he's like, I've never seen anything this bad. I'm like, yeah. well, I guess there's a little comfort knowing that yeah. you feel just as bad about it as I do. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it really is that bad. Um, so, yeah, when you have a year where there's a lot of rain and the red wines, you know, aren't going to make it. The rosés probably aren't going to be good either. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> probably, right? You know, I, we pulled ours out okay, but I will tell you, mine still came from the same fruit that it was going to be rosé. Okay. So what happens in those rainy years, you know, a lot of times it's an economical decision. you got to salvage something, right? Sure. And that makes sense. We yeah. want our businesses to survive. Yeah. So you're going to make rosé because you couldn't make the red you wanted to make. But if it's not going to make good red, it's probably not going to make great rosé either mm -hmm. right so and and there are years where all of a sudden you see a lot more rosé mm -hmm. and you see lots of people making it that never made it before don't buy that <laughs> don't buy it yeah they made it for the first time ever yeah. maybe they got away with it but i gotta say rosé is probably the hardest wine out there to make and anyone that's really trying to craft a quality rosé they get that yeah right if they're Thinking of it as, well, people want just pink wine, so I want to make one too. And they could be a great winemaker and they could craft a good wine. It's not going to be bad. Yeah. But it's not going to, it's not going to be the same thing, right? Unless you're really going for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I am the one to throw the rosé questions at. And, and I'll tell you, so the rosé of Merlot is coming from Greenstone Vineyard. It's the same place I sourced my Albarino. When I first came here... We sourced Merlot from a different vineyard for the rosé. It wasn't good enough. Okay. And it wasn't going to make the cut. So the next year in 16, I sourced from another one. I'm like, no, not good enough. And I looked at our program and our wines because we were pulling in the red wine, the Merlot from Greenstone to the red program. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I know where there's good Merlot. It's right here. We're already getting it. So I shifted it. And I'm probably one of the only winemakers that's going to shift fruit from the red program to the rosé program yeah. to make a better rosé. Yeah. Because to me, I mean, that's, again, that's, that's, that's me as a winemaker. Well, that was my, so. my question when you said, well, the grapes that you salvaged or, or that you got were going to be rosé anyway. Yeah. And so that was my next question. Well, what variety was that when you're, so do you. Is that your variety of choice of Merlot to make rosé? So I have, I have two now that I'm working with. Okay. Um, so last year in, last vintage 2019, I sourced um, Cabernet Sauvignon from another local vineyard. Mm. And I pulled the whole block in. I split it in half. We're going to do half for rosé and half for red. And the rosé was so good. I'm like, nope, next year it's all rosé. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I have a Cab Sauve and I have a Merlot. Um, rosé. You know, from tasting around the state and other producers, I, I pegged Merlot first because a lot of people right. were working with it and I think it is very successful for us in Virginia as a, as a rosé varietal. Um, that being said, it's hard to source. I, you know, I have a little bit on my estate so it's got to go to that red blend first. I'm having a hard time finding it because some, some of those big guns use a lot of it. Um, the Cab Sauve, for me, that was the first time to, to use that. I want to add more rosé to the portfolio. Um, honestly, if I could walk out of my tank room and see every tank be pink, I'd be happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so let's try, let's catch. So I've never done it before. I was nervous. I really didn't know 
how it was going to work. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon, when it's not ripe, is really green. It's a really green flavor too. I'm like, how am I going to pick for rosé when you're going to pick earlier? Because you want less sugar. You don't want a real high alcohol wine and you want the acid and the freshness and have it not come out tasting really green. Um, and I think the key to that was all really in, in gentle skin contact time and gentle pressing because the green is in the skin. Mm -hmm. So if you're not fermenting on the skin, well, you don't get it. Uh, I was still afraid it was going to get in there somehow. <laughs> so I just wasn't sure what was going to happen. And I was so pleasantly surprised with that wine the first time. Um, so yes, I have a Cabsob. It's 100% from one vineyard and a Merlot 100% from one vineyard. I want to expand ideally if I can source the fruit that I think is going to work, I really want to make a blend. I want to make a cuvee. So when wow. you, you look to, you know, the best winemaking, uh, best rosé winemaking region in the world, mm. Provence, that's what they do. Okay. You know, 90% of their winemaking is rosé and it's all serious production and they treat it like a red, you know, a big red cuvee where they're putting those pieces together. Um, yeah. Well, I know uh, the popularity of rosé has skyrocketed might be, Oh, an overstatement? Maybe not. No, it know. has, and it keeps growing, yeah, which is great. Yeah, but, you know, I understand that's quite an American thing. Like, on other continents, it gets big respect, but for some reason, here in the Americas, we were, you know, for a while, me included. Well, you know why, right? It, well, I thought it was just a nasty, sweet wine. Right, because think of the first pink wine we all saw in America. Was it was it? White Zinfandel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. So, right. so that's oh. what it was. It was that it was pink, and it was right. sweet, and that's... Right. And that's why it's right. taken a lot of time to. That was big time when I was at college. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's taken it's taken a lot of time to, to introduce what what serious real rosé production is. People yeah. get it now, which is fantastic. Yeah. But but yeah, like you, yeah, you saw that. I understand. Are you guys all sold out now? Yeah. Oh yeah. We we sold out. You sold me a bottle already. I'm just like mm -hmm. after we're finished, I'll go get one. But we we sold out in um, August. Yeah. We mm. didn't even make it through the summer on the rosés last year. But like I said, a bottle last week. So we're in there in the bottle for a week. Um, probably April mm -hmm. for a release. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I won't drive past anymore. Okay. <laughs> I won't drive past anymore. Better. Is it, this is a, a and by the way, because you know this was in. Uh, uh, not a visual medium. This is, you have a beautiful tasting room and layout here. It's really nice. Yeah. So uh, I would highly recommend if you're in Middleburg to stop by Cana for sure. So is there something that you, that you've learned over this period of time that you've been on your, on your own, so to speak, uh, that you collaborate a lot that you would, if you could send a text message back to yourself, then that you'd like to know, would have liked to have known or has it just been a journey? Just oh gosh, I I don't I don't I think it has just been a journey. Yeah. I think I would probably try to tell myself, you know, it's okay. You can sleep tonight. That wine's gonna be fine. <laughs> um, but I still need to tell myself that now. Right. Um, it's you know it's interesting when you, you it, wine. It, I I don't know. It's it's like I said. It is is I found it as my passion, and I throw all of myself into it. Yeah. So it's, 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 yeah. You know, when they say, you know, do something you love, you know, never work a day in your life. I call BS on that all the time <laughs> because you work so much harder yeah. because you can't disconnect, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's an artistic expression. So you, you take everything personally and you're always, you know, you, you bring, you get through the season, like you, you lose sleep all vineyard season cause you're watching the weather mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't matter if you worry or not, it's going to do what it's going to do. Right. 
I, I don't know. I haven't found a way to stop worrying. That, well, I can't, I can't imagine what you guys go through because, uh, you know, I'm not even responsible for anything. I'm just a consumer. But because I've gotten to know so many people in the business and I enjoy the product, now when it, when it snows too, or the deep freeze or it rains too much, I'm thinking, God, I wonder what's happening to those grapes. Right. Yeah. But and so I can realize I, I have no idea what it's like, you know, when it's time to harvest them. Right. Know? So you have the whole vineyard season to worry. And then if you're, you know, and there's a lot of us at smaller facilities like myself that are the vineyard manager and the winemaker. So, you know, if someone that's just a grower, when they get that fruit off the vine, whew, yeah. they can kick back, <laughs> relax, and they're done. Right. Right. It, not me. Like I got the fruit in great. Now I don't have to worry about the weather. Now we have to get through the fermentation and we have to craft it into, to what we want to be. And, and wine is so alive and always changing and that's fantastic and exciting, but also terrifying sometimes. Yeah. Right. And we'll go back to rosé production. And this is a piece of it. Rosé does weird things in its life cycle before it's finished. And I, I I'm trying to learn and, and remember what my specific wines do. I, I had a day a few weeks ago where I wasn't happy with one of them. We were getting closer to bottling. And, and one of my colleagues in the tasting room said, Mel, it was about the same time last year. It did the same thing. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and it's just a normal course of its evolution. And, I, you know, I wish I could say, well, next year when that comes up again, mm -hmm. I'm not going to get as upset about it. But I probably will. Yeah. You know, you're always, until that wine is in the bottle, I don't know, you just, because it is alive and evolving, I'm always thinking, oh, why something's going to happen? Well, I can see now why, <laughs> no, but that is why you uh, were able to go from uh, one career, unrelated, totally unrelated, it wasn't like you were a farmer and then decided yeah. to be, I'm totally unrelated <laughs> to being a, uh, a talented winemaker uh, because you care so much, obviously. And yeah. I can see that it is something you definitely have to nurture from the time you plant the vine until you said, until it's in the bottle. Until it's in the bottle. All those tiny little details just kind of add up to create what that end product is going to be. Yeah. So last Friday we bottled um, four whites and two rosés from 2020. And like bottling day is, is, is a big stressful day and little things go wrong, but it's one of my favorite days <laughs> because man, once that wine is in the bottle and cork or screw cap is on, you're like, okay, okay, that one's done. <laughs> we made it. What about tasting in the barrel or whatever the tank or whatever type of wine it is? Mm -hmm. um, are there some times when you're not what you think it's going to be? It's not as far along as you think it should be or in your... Oh, yeah. It's not what you, what you want it to be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it, you know, going through and tasting one this year, I was like, wasn't as happy with and everyone else like no it's really good i'm like well it's it's really easy for me to be unhappy yeah. with one of my wines and it's a lot yeah. harder for me to be happy with yeah. it that's all right that's what I'm, I'm, I'm getting there i'm yeah. getting there yeah. okay. and yeah. i've had a lot that i've been real excited about but yeah yeah well that's what artists do that's what they, they do you say i could do it better you know next time i'll do it better so, Which is exciting, right? So, like, yeah. you get through you get through a vintage, and then you can sit down and you can reflect and say, okay, here's the here's the course of that wine, and here's what this did and what that did. So, this is what we're gonna try next. Mm -hmm. um, there's always there's always the next, and that's and that's fine. My goal is always that the next vintage is gonna be better, yeah. right? Because unless you're trying to improve each step along the way, 
you're going to fall behind, yeah, right? The sure. way we're all growing now is that we just keep striving for better and better. If you kind of stay here and you get happy with, well, that's, that's good enough. You're, you're, you're going to fall behind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's working because, uh, again, one of the reasons I thought I should do a podcast like this is because, you know, I think this is like, in a way, like Napa in the seventies, you know, you know, we're Virginia and Maryland and the mid Atlantic really putting good product in the bottle now. And I want everyone to know about it. So, so to finish up with two questions, one, take as long as you'd like, what would you like people to know about Virginia wine or the, the what's going on here? And then later, what is, what should they know about Kina? Um, Virginia wine, we make some really damn good wine. Um, and yeah, I think that's the most important thing to know, right? <laughs> okay, like okay. We, we make Period. really good wine across the state. You have yeah. a whole handful of producers in lots of different regions. Our state is big yeah, and we have lots of little different microclimates and growing areas. So that's another fun thing to explore. Taste around the state. You'll find different wines that are doing different things in different parts of the state. And that's kind of exciting. Yeah. So we're not just one thing we're one community and one goal for virginia wine mm -hmm. but we're all doing different exciting things and i think that's what makes it so fun is that we're not saying okay we're virginia this is exactly what we make this is exactly what you're going to taste and this is our favorite wine we're all going to make this one wine well that's kind of boring yeah. you know yeah. so there's a really great variety of different quality things you can find here um, for cana I want you to come here and drink rosé. Uh, <laughs> we have our estate here. So I have a couple of wines coming off the estate. The Unita Reserve is our red. The white is a Petit Mensang, sometimes with a little VNA blended in. So those are our estate wines. But I really want people to know us as a rosé producer. Yep. I mean, okay. that's, that's my big thing. But also, you know, just coming out to visit us, um, we're a really... I think we're a pretty laid back, approachable kind of place to be, mm -hmm. right? So you can bring your dogs, you can bring your kids, you can spread out on the lawn and have a picnic and enjoy your wine. And that's important for me too as a, a producer because I want wine to be approachable. I don't want wine to be, oh, that's that scary thing. You, you have to read a book and you have to know all this about it or you're not even smart enough to talk about it. Whatever. Wine is food. Yeah. Wine is food to me. You know, yeah. so it's, that's, yeah. Well, Melanie Natoli, thank you. I am pronouncing your last name correctly. Right? You are. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for your time. This has been fantastic. I, uh, you sold me on Rosé. You know, it's I, my I, although, personal mission for I came, everyone. I, I came in with, <laughs> you know, uh, a different opinion already, but you have solidified it. So I will be back this uh, spring to pick some up and uh, I'll be back. Now I'll be back for sure more often. So, yeah, don't drive by next time. I won't. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye -bye. Well, that's another show in the books. I had a great time speaking with Melanie Natoli of Cana Vineyards. If you live in or near the DMV, or if you're visiting Middleburg, Virginia, don't make the mistake that I've been making. Stop by Cana Vineyards on John Mosby Highway. And please, whoever you speak with there, tell them that you heard Melanie on Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher. Melanie, thank you again for being on the show. You're always welcome to come on to discuss all things grapes, <laughs> Virginia wine, and especially rosé related. Especially rosé related. 
I'm about promoting the craft beverage industry in the DMV because it's some of the best in the nation. If you agree, please share the podcast. The more it grows, the more I can get the word out about the craft beverage culture in the DMV and the great things we're doing here. This show was written, produced, birthed, messed up a little bit by yours truly. I'm Howard Fletcher. I'll be back next week with another craft beverage maker in the DMV to introduce to you. I know there's a ton of media you could be listening to besides me, and that's why I work so hard to bring you the content that I do. I truly appreciate your time investment in me. Thank you very much again for listening. And remember, always have a designated driver, so I'll see you next time. Ispicata. You have been listening to Barrel Tasting with Howard Fletcher, part of the Fletcher Podcast Group. You can reach Howard at his website, barreltastingpod.com. I'm Asia Blue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.